Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. morning church and I just want to welcome everyone this morning who are here with us and also those who have joined on live stream. I just want to welcome you to this Tour de Colossians. Just want to ask you a question, have you, hope you are enjoying your journey so far and trust you have been taking snapshots with your theological cameras. Trust you are keeping up your journal as you spot some remarkable impressions mind-provoking, convicting thoughts and concepts. Well, here we are, church. We are on the third day of our tour. Today, we'll be looking at four verses only in chapter 1, verses 9 to 12. So I would encourage you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. But before we dive in, let's give you the context, just to remind you, bring you to speed, everyone. So the time is about A.D. 62. Now Paul is in prison in Rome. Now Epaphras, a convert through the teachings of Paul, he was the founder of this little church in Colossae. Now this little insignificant church in Colossae came up against a serious demonic heretic, heretical attack. The exact nature of the false teaching is not known. But we do know that the Colossian heresy or the deviation stems from three elements. One is the Greek false philosophy, and then we have the Judaistic legalism and ceremonialism. The core issue here is the denial of the supremacy and the all-sufficiency of Christ for salvation. So naturally... Paul's defense is on the sufficiency of Christ. And the whole theme of the book of Colossians is this. So Epaphras, the founder of this church, he makes this 1,000 plus miles journey to Paul, who is in Rome, seeking godly counsel as to how he could handle this crisis. So Paul writes a beautiful letter, and that's what we are looking at and to the church in Colossae, and he sends it through a brother that he calls, a beloved brother called Tychicus. And in this letter to the book of Colossians, we see that on day one we saw that Paul started by greeting the saints in Colossae. And then verses 3 to 8, he gave thanks to the Lord. For what? For their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, for their love for all the saints, and stemming from their hope laid up for them in heaven. Now today we are going to look at verses 9 to 12. And in these verses we see that he writes a specific prayer for their growth. The knowledge of God's will. So Paul prayed for further spiritual growth for the saints in the church in Colossae. So in such a situation... Why should Paul pray for spiritual growth? 
knowing very well that this church is very much alive. In their faith, that's what we saw last week, in their love for the saints, and in their hope. Church, let me ask you a question. How do you know that something is alive? Anything that is alive must grow. It grows. So if you are alive in Christ, the key indicator is growth. Not physical, of course, but spiritual growth. Paul knew that because without it, Christians would become stagnant, unproductive, will stumble under heretic attacks. Now Peter says this beautifully in his second epistles in chapter 1. As you read through verses 5 to 7, Peter talks about the need for spiritual growth. We went through that study in our church some time ago. Now Peter talks about to adding to your faith the virtue and the virtue knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and kindness and love. We see it's a trajectory progression of growth. Then in verse 8, Peter says, If these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verse 10, Peter talks about what this knowledge would do to us. The knowledge of the Lord, what would it do to us? Look at this passage here. And he says there, Peter, to Peter, it says, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. And then he says, if you do these things, you will never stumble. If you do these things, you will never stumble. Peter says, the growth and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ will help you not to stumble. And that's exactly what Paul is doing to the saints in Colossae. Here we see in verses 9 onwards, the apostle moves from a prayer of thanksgiving to a very specific petition that these saints in Colossae who are, who are encountering a heretical attack may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So what do you learn from this church before we go further? We are learning how to and what to pray for as we encounter spiritual heresy or deviation or compromise. I want you to turn with me for a moment to Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. Here Paul uses another image. Paul was talking about Epaphras, and look at this passage as it appears on the screen. It says, Epaphras, who is one of you uh, and a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently. I love that word. Always laboring fervently for you in prayers. If you look at the NIV translation, it puts it even more beautifully. It says, wrestling in prayer. Always fervent, laboring fervently for you in your prayers that you may stand perfect. In other words, you may stand firm and complete. You become mature in all the will of God. That's what you're seeing there. When we, so when do we wrestle in prayer? Let me ask you a question. When do you wrestle in prayer? 
Let's be honest about it, church. We wrestle in prayer when we fall sick, when we are broke, when we are looking for a job, when we are looking for a life partner, when we are in trouble, when we desperately need something. That's when we wrestle in prayer. But Apostle Paul wrestled in prayer for spiritual growth of the saints. Paul prayed differently than most of us pray in our church prayer meetings. Paul's prayers are tremendously instructive as you look at this. So what do we learn from this? Paul's prayers teach us how we should pray. Paul's prayers are transformational. They relate to the highest good, the experiential, personal, relational knowledge of God. That's what Paul is praying for. That can only be given to us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Paul knows that we are in a constant spiritual warfare. We are in the battlefield every day. Church, in a war or any military combat, the objectives usually fall into these areas. Number one, it can be strategic. That is the primary and the essential objectives. Number two is tactical. The more immediate, the short-term goals, what do we want to achieve? Number three is logistics. That's the distribution of supplies and men and material and so on and so forth. But if we examine ourselves, most of our prayer life, it centers primarily on logistics, on our health and wealth issues. But note, church, Paul's prayers focus mostly on the strategic and tactical. In Colossae, we know that the heretics were offering the church false knowledge and false solutions and to the needs and problems of the people. To counter the false knowledge of the heretics, Paul prays for a full and more penetrating knowledge of God's will. Paul is not addressing the symptoms. He wants to go deep in and eliminate the root cause of the problem. In the Old Testament, we see a prophetical utterance of Daniel. It gives a clarity on what the knowledge of God would do. See this church, in Daniel chapter 11, it says, but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. If you look at from NIV, it says, they will firmly resist Resist what church? Resist the devilish schemes. Those who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. If you know the Lord, if you have the knowledge of the Lord, you are able to firmly resist the schemes of the devil. So Paul's plea for the saints in Colossae that they too would know their God and will firmly resist the schemes of the heretics. There's a great life application for all of us here. Here's a great lesson for us, for every one of us. Now, some of us may have behavioral issues, habitual sins that we are not able to eradicate, no matter how much we tried. Some of us may have children who are wayward and rebellious. Some of us may have marital problems that does not seem to end even after hours and hours of counsel. 
You might say, Pastor, I've tried every therapy available. I've been to the most reputed counselor, and nothing seemed to work. Church, please hear me out. These issues that you are experiencing are only the symptoms. You may fix those temporarily with a little bit of Tylenols and Advils that you hear from some counselors. For permanent solutions, you have to go deep in and address the root cause. The cause not knowing who our God is, not having the right relationship with Him. Church, what we need is the right relationship with the Lord. Put that right first, and you will live a victorious life, and all will fall in place. So our prayer should be a prayer for salvation, a prayer for deeper understanding of who our God is. That should be our prayer. We should be praying for this. We should be wrestling in prayer, praying earnestly, always laboring fervently in prayer, just as we read there, that we would increase in the knowledge of God, that our wayward child will increase in the knowledge of God, that our, our spouse will increase in the knowledge of God, that I will increase in the knowledge of God. That should be our prayer. That is addressing the root cause of the problem. We should address the root cause and not the symptoms. So let us resort to be prayer warriors, praying for our primary need that we should grow in the knowledge of our Lord. And when that happens, church, then we will withstand the storms of life and we will not stumble. So our very first lesson that we learn as we go through this is we will, whatever challenges we may face, we will diligently pray for growth in the knowledge of God. That is the first lesson that we take from there. That's the only way to overcome the enemy. So with this introduction, let's dive into the passage now. Verse number nine. Paul writes this way. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So Paul gives the cause of the prayer. Paul begins by saying, for this reason, if you look at this. He talks about the cause of the prayer. For this reason means it links with the preceding section of thanksgiving, specifically the report that he received from Epaphras regarding their faith, their love for the saints, and the hope. So Paul was grateful for what God had done in their lives. Paul knew that their love would fizzle out and die without continuous growth in the truth of the Savior. So now Paul writes, after, after giving the cause of this prayer, he writes the content as you look at verse number, the same, same verse here, in verse number 9, the latter part, that you may be filled, that's the content of the prayer, that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. This request forms the objective of the prayer. But essentially, church, it is also the root and foundation for all that follows afterwards. So Paul was aware of the threat posed by the heretics 
We spoke about it last time, and I told you again, it, 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 it stems from these three, the, the false Greek philosophy, the Judaistic legalism, and ceremonialism. So the only way to combat that is to be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. It is needed to thwart the shallow knowledge of the Gnostics, who believed there was a mysterious or secret knowledge reserved for those with true understanding leading to the salvation of the soul. So the answer to the modern-day Gnosticism or the secret cults or mystery religions of today is the full knowledge of God's revealed will in Christ. Now, you might wonder, why do I say in Christ? Now, Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 14, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. So in essence, what he says, knowing God is to know Christ. When you know Christ, you know God. That is why the whole epistle speaks of the doctrine of Christology, the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. The perfection of knowledge is to know God in Jesus Christ. So in this verse number 9, we see that Paul's plea is that the saints in Colossae may be filled with the knowledge of the will, of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now you may ask, Pastor, what does Paul mean by be filled with the knowledge of his will? Church, it is not to know that when you talk about the will here, it's not about... God, what's the job that I have to take? What type of person that I should marry? That's not the will that Paul is talking about here. Paul is asking that they might know God's moral will as revealed in the word. That the believers would be controlled by this knowledge so that it would govern their every thought, every word, and every deed. Paul says that if you possess this fullness of knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, it will be evidenced in your life. If you truly have this knowledge and understanding, people can see it in your life. So you might wonder, in what areas can people see that, you may ask. See what Paul says. As you look at the next passage in verses 9 onwards, Paul emphasized the theme of fullness by repeatedly using the words all and every. Look at this, verse number 9. All spiritual wisdom and understanding, he says. And said, to please him in all aspects, bearing fruit in every good work. Verse 11, strengthened with all power for the attaining of all steadfastness or long-suffering and patience. So Paul is saying he wants us to know that every spiritual need that we have is to be found fully in Christ. So why go anywhere else? So when you are filled with the knowledge of his will, it will certainly be shown in your life. I'm going to show you a picture. I was trying to break in my head as to how, how best I could show this to you. So many Christians, we can, we can, we can see that in a pizza, you know what a pizza looks like. I've, maybe I've shown this to you before, but bear with me. Now, when you look at this pizza here, most Christians are like this. Now, God occupies in one, 
occupies only one of those slices in their lives. And all the other slices that we see there All the other slices that we see there, whether it's physical, financial, emotional, secular, social, cultural, communal, they are different slices. God is not allowed, nor does he have any influence in the other slices of life. We keep him as one slice. On a Sunday, in the evening, maybe at the time of prayer, and we leave him there. But the one who is filled with the knowledge, as Paul says, all and every aspect of it, is like the second image. We see the same issues there, where God becomes the crust. He is not the slice. He is the crust and every slice is placed on that crust. Whether physical, financial, emotional, secular, social, cultural and communal, the influence of God is seen in all aspects of life because the entire issues that we are looking at is being placed on the crust, which is God. In your worship, in your work life, in your wedded life, in your war life, Christ governs. So Paul says the true knowledge of God's will lies with this scope, he says with two words, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So the knowledge of how God wants us to live requires spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now the word spiritual applies to both, the wisdom and understanding. Now Paul, later on in chapter 3, he tells us what spiritual wisdom is not. Look at this, Colossians 2.23. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom, Paul says, in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So spiritual wisdom requires learning about God and learning how He wants us to live so that our lives will not be ruined by sin, so that our lives will become a finely crafted product that will cause others to be attracted to, not to me, but to my maker. How can you live a life like this? In trials and tribulations, in difficulties. And they are going, soon they are going to know who your God is. And God's glory is displayed in you. It's the word, the wisdom and understanding are somewhat synonymous. But there are subtle differences here. Wisdom refers to the knowing God, how God's word commands us to live. Look at things from God's perspective. Understanding refers to the insight and perception and the ability to discern between things. Understanding enables us to put the pieces of wisdom together in specific situation. If I may illustrate this for you to get it, Understanding is knowing how to use a gun to shoot. Wisdom is knowing when to use a gun to shoot. Understanding is knowing how to shoot a gun. Wisdom is knowing when to shoot a gun. 
You know, when we look at mega churches and may learn how to make a church modern, how to do a lively worship, how to teach and preach to keep the attention of the people, that is understanding. But if you are not careful, church, these techniques and fads come more from the world than from God's word. We should always know the wise before spending time and energy on the house. When your house stems from the wise, you have spiritual wisdom and understanding. Let's move on. Verse number 10 now. Verse number 10, Paul says, Now Paul says that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. So Paul says, if you do possess the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding which every believer is expected to do, it will be evident in these ways. And the first thing he says is that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. The knowledge of God's will will lead to a walk that is worthy of the Lord. In other words, Paul says the result of all biblical knowledge should be godly conduct. If your conduct is not godly, then obviously you don't have the proper knowledge of God. And the primary motive for godly conduct is that we please and glorify God. So what does it mean to be, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Those of us who grew up in, back in, in Sri Lanka and maybe in India and places like that, we grew up in a shame-based culture. Let me explain that to you. In a shame-based culture, you know you are good or bad by what your community says about you, by whether it honors or excludes you. In a shame-based, shame culture, social exclusion makes people feel they are bad. This had a more profound meaning in the first century where most cultures were shame-based. In a shame-based culture, you, to dishonor your father is really a big deal. So whether you like it or not, you're not going to fight for your rights in shame-based culture. You will do everything so that your father's name is not dishonored. We are always conscious of and how we portray ourselves in the community, how we portray our family in the community. You're always conscious of maintaining the honor of your father no matter where you are and what trials that you may face. So here is Paul urging these believers to live in a way that would bring glory and honor to the Lord, the Heavenly Father. And we learned this more about this as you go into verses 13 and 14. So in every situation, the question we need to ask church is that what sort of speech shall conduct would honor and glorify the name of the Lord? What would please him the most? Will, is your walk worthy of the Lord? Can others look at you and say, hmm, it's bringing glory to God? So that's my second point as we look at this. Our growth will be evidenced, number one, is by our walk that is worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him. 
Let's move on. Let's go back to verse number 10 now. And he said that, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him. And then he says, being fruitful in every good work. So the second thing, the second evidence of having the proper knowledge of God is that we bear fruit in every good work. Now fruit is what God accomplishes through us as we depend on Him. Hear me, hear what the Lord said. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So although we could do a big study on that, fruit generally consists of Christ-like character and conduct. And we know what the fruit of the Spirit is. It's given in Galatians chapter 5. Genuine saving faith inevitably produces good works. In Ephesians, we find that for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk with Him. Church, note that being fruitful is a continuous present. It's not a one-time thing. It is not that I am fruitful today and I am not fruitful tomorrow. Being fruitful. So this only reminds us that our lives are to be perennial and constant sources of fruit for the Lord. It also calls to remind the ongoing work of the Father as our spiritual winekeeper. God is constantly at work to take us from no fruit to fruit to more fruit to much fruit. If we yield ourselves, if we cling on to that branch. So what does it mean? This is not always present, church. If we want to exhibit or bear fruit we need to be pruned. Because quite often, it requires severe cutting back of the branches. It means there is pruning and chopping. It may require suffering and pain. But if our lives are to have fruit, if we are going to mature, various trials are a necessary part of our life. That's how we are pruned. Look at verse 10 again. Being fruitful in what? Every good work. Every good work. It actually marks a sphere of fruitfulness. You know, mostly you know that most trees produce after their kind. Now, if you get an apple tree, you get only apples. You don't get mangoes from an apple tree. But interestingly, I saw one of the one, one theologian puts it this way. He said, but this one, where Paul is writing, uh, writing to us, is omniferous. What that means is that producing all kinds of all varieties of all forms. So the fruit of the Spirit must come from us, from one individual. And you know what that characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit is. So here it means that bearing all the virtues of the fruit of the Spirit. And also this verse says, being fruitful in every good work. What do you take from that? 
What does it tell you when you say being fruitful in every good work? As you read this, you can see, church, there are, it implies that there can be two types of good work. Good work, there can be two types. A good work that can be fruitful, a good work that may not be fruitful. Isn't it? That's what it says here. Still, both can be good work. So it's a reminder that we can be engaged in a good work or in good works, but without genuine fruitfulness. It's sad but true that our good works can be dead works. The works of the flesh. Works done in our own energy and from wrong motives. Meaning work done with wrong motives, meaning to please ourselves or impress others or outdo others. They don't please God. Because God is neither the source nor the energy behind the works produced. We have a great example in the Bible of a church. The church is Church of Ephesus. And we see that in Revelation chapter 2. Here's what was written to the church. Christ told the church in Ephesus. I know your works, your labor, your patience. See how God describes this. That you cannot bear those who are evil. Isn't that a good thing? Yes, of course. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and found them liars. Good works. You are very smart. You are able to figure those things out. You have good works, good labor, good patience. But, there's a big but there. There was something missing that they experienced God's rebuke here. Verse number 4, Revelation chapter 2. Nevertheless, but I have this against you. What? That you have left your first love. The church of Ephesus had works, labor, and endurance, but there is no mention of the faith, love, and hope. But look at the church in Thessalonica. Paul writes such commendation to that, you know, church, my prayer for us as seekers is that we would be known as the church in Thessalonica. This is what he says. We, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Excellent commendation by Paul. We see the vital principle that the apostle always see good works as fruit, not as the root. What is the root? The root here is the abiding, spirit-controlled, word-filled life. So Paul says when you are filled with the knowledge of his will, the evidence, the first one we looked at, I'll go back to this again, is that by our walk we'll see. The number second one is that we will be seen by being fruitful in every good work. What does that mean? We are yielding to be pruned, serving with the right motive, and honoring God. Let's keep going. Verse number 10 again. It says, increasing in the knowledge. is not only being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge. So the third point that we look at here, if you are filled with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, you will increase in the knowledge of God. This phrase may mean we are growing to know God better or we are growing 
by knowing God better. When we talk about growing, we always picture a child growing, isn't it? From an infant to a child to a teenager to a youth to a young adult to an older person and so on and so forth. I know that when we go and, go and buy clothing for my grandson John, we always, when you want to buy the sleeper or the play suit, we always buy a little bigger because what do we say? Oh, he's going to grow into it. And he does very quickly. Now, it is the same for us as believers. The knowledge of God is a garment that you could never possibly grow all the way into it and say, oh, it fits me fine now. The knowledge of God is so vast and deep and wide and high that you, should, you could spend a hundred lifetimes growing in your knowledge of God. You will still have an incredible amount of growing yet to do. That's why Apostle Paul writes to the Romans, Oh, the depth of the riches of both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And for who has known the mind of the Lord? It's impossible. But just because it's impossible, we cannot just ignore that. That's the only way we are going to combat the battles of our lives. So how do we get to know him, you may ask. As a parent, listen carefully, it pleases me when my children want to spend time with me so that they can know me better. Church, in the same way, we please God when you are willing to spend time with him so that we can know him better. If you really want to know Jesus better, God better, then love him and obey him. This directly from the Lord's mouth. John 14, 21, hear what he says. He who has my commandments keeps them and is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. I will disclose myself to him, to whom? The one who loves me and then the one who keeps my commandment. You want to get to know him? You love him. And you obey him. That's what you are seeing here. You can see this principle even in human relationship. You don't disclose yourself to those you are not, who are not worthy of your trust. You won't share your heart with just anyone, but only with those who care enough about you to keep your trust. Same is true with God. When the Lord sees that we love him and, and we are trustworthy because we obey him, he is going to reveal himself to us. So if you want to know him, we need to love him, we need to obey him. That's the third thing that we're learning in this passage. So the evidence, number one, will be by our walk. Number two is being fruitful. And number three is increasing in the knowledge of God. Number four. Let's look at verse number 11 now. Strengthened. It says, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. We please the Lord when we are strengthened with his power to be steadfast and patient, to, to have long-suffering and joy. Church, when you talk about the power of God, often in the Old Testament, we see that it was a blinding light or a bright cloud or a lightning with thunder. That's what you have seen. 
Whenever anyone encountered God's glory, he fell to his face in awe and reverence and afraid that he would die. That is how the power was demonstrated in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we see the power of God in many places, such as in the Mount of Transfiguration when the Lord performed his miracles, in the garden when the soldiers fell off, or, or on the cross when he died, the sky was darkened and the earth quaked and the glory was seen. And Paul experienced it firsthand when he was knocked down and, and, and blinded him, bringing him to submission. And there are many more examples that we see. So Paul here says that we please the Lord when we are strengthened with his power. Church, can we say that we have experienced the mighty power of God in your lives? We may think that if we were experiencing God's power, hear me out, we would see people miraculously healed in our services. If I'm experiencing God's power... We could command demons and they would flee. We will see the dead raised and we will preach and about 3,000 people will be saved on one day and we will see these dramatic answers to our prayers. But that's not what Paul means here, says. Paul is not talking about that here. Do not misunderstand when he says, strengthen with all might according to his glorious power. If God is miraculously delivering you in every situation, then you don't need patience and long-suffering with joy. Paul would not have added it at the end for all patience and long-suffering with joy as you look at this verse. You only need long-suffering, that is endurance in trials, and patience bearing with difficult people when there are no miracle, miraculous things happening. There are no deliverance. So Paul is saying that when we bear up difficult circumstances with difficult people that you might come across practically every day maybe with joy in the Lord because of his great salvation, we are experiencing God's mighty power in our lives. We please the Lord when we experience his sufficiency in our weaknesses and his grace to sustain us in our trials. That's why the Lord told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So what do we learn, see here, church, is that Paul explains that believers have God's power in their lives. God's power gives us long-suffering, which is the ability to withstand hardship without failing. God's power gives us patience. Patience is part of the fruit of the Spirit. God's power gives us joy. Joy is also part of the fruit of the Spirit. That is what he's talking about here. So what Paul is saying, the fourth evidence that we can see in this, in this is that not only you walk that is worthy of the Lord, not only you are fruitful, not only you are growing, but you are joyfully Bearing trials with long-suffering patience because you are strengthened with His power. And finally, he comes to the last point. We please the Lord when we joyously give thanks to Him for His great salvation. When we see, when we go through trials, we please God if we don't grumble. That we are filled with joyous thanksgiving. Why? Because... Look at the next, next verse here. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us. Who qualified us? I didn't qualify myself. My God qualified us to, to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. 
If we are joyfully thankful people, we'll stand out as light in the darkness, church. Paul writes this to the saints in Philippi, and this is what he says, do all things without complaining and disputing. This is a great lesson for us, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom do you shine as lights in the world. So how do you develop this joyous, thankful attitude in the midst of difficult problems and difficult people? Because in this world you have trials. That's what the Bible says. Paul is saying to set your mind on the fact that the God of the universe has qualified you by giving us the greatest gift, gift of salvation, to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. Paul is saying that the Father has given us inheritance that we share with all the saints in the light. We have Christ in us and enjoy his full salvation. That is what Paul is talking about here. And we should be able to pass this down to our generations to come. The others should be able to see the joy in us even when we go through trials and want to experience the same blessings that we enjoy. So church, our joy in the midst of all the suffering will come because he has qualified us to be partakers in the, of the inheritance of the saints in light. So, what have we learned so far? Here we have a little church in Colossae. They encountered a problem. But the church is a good church. They had faith, they had love, they had hope. But they encountered a huge problem, a heretical problem. And problem based on false knowledge. Problem based on legalism. So Paul is now writing to them. And he's making a plea, a prayer to them. On their behalf, God, increase their knowledge. Let them be filled with the knowledge of his will. Let them receive that wisdom and spiritual understanding. And when they have it, they become successful. Why? Because it will be evidence in their life and you can see they, when their growth will be seen by their walk. Their walk will be worthy of the Lord. Fully pleasing and reflecting in our lives. And secondly, you'll be bearing fruit in every work. Every good work that you do will bear fruit because it's done not out of any selfish motive. It is done with right motive because of the knowledge you have with Him. You're doing it to honor Him, to please Him, and you are pre be prepared to be pruned. Thirdly, then, then you, 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 you'll increase in the knowledge of him by loving him and obeying him. You want to keep on learning and becoming more closer to him, getting to know him better. Fourthly, you are strengthened. No matter what trials may come your way, you are able to bear with long-suffering and patience with joy because you are strengthened with his power. And finally, you are thankful. Your life is a life of thankfulness. Why? Because you have been appointed. You have been chosen. You have received the gift of salvation. So as believers, let the worship team come and let me close with prayer today. I pray that we will aspire to be people like this, the saints in Colossae. Where we will be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom 
and spiritual understanding. Church, that should be our prayer. Not about the trials that we are facing daily. God, in the midst of all these trials, my prayer is that please fill me with the knowledge of your will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding because if you have that, everything else will fall in place. That's exactly what Paul did. Let us pray. Father, every one of us can tell stories about the struggles that we go through. But we realize today that all these struggles that we are having are symptoms in our life. The root cause is that lack of knowledge, lack of understanding. And I pray in Jesus' name that you'll make our church, the members of this church, to be like the church in Thessalonica, where we will receive that commendation from you. That on that day that we look at every one of us and we'll say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So help us to grow in your knowledge. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.